really good to be here. We didn't bring the weather, I promise. And, uh, but it's, I think it's really good we're getting some rain, don't you? For where it really needs to fall. Someone asked the question, could you eat cake every day for a week? Well, I did once, <laughs> and that was all I ate. I was very shy when I went to Melbourne Uni, um, and my mother had sent me over there with a fruitcake, and I was too shy to ask where the cafeteria was, and so I lived on fruitcake for a week. And then hunger forced me into asking somebody. <laughs> uh, I became a Christian that year, and uh, it's amazing just what the love of God can do in terms of giving a person confidence and an ability to find their way in the world. Let's pray together as we come to hear God's word to us in the scriptures. Father God, we pray now that in your kindness and mercy you will speak your living word to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that we may hear your word and that it will do its great work in our lives, uh, in our being, assuring us of who you are and uh, renewing and refreshing us in who we are in you. We pray particularly, Father, that if we need renewing, if we need refreshing, if we need waking up, if we need reviving, that by your Holy Spirit you'll work in us today. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. So we're listening today to this letter of Jesus to the church in Sardis. I'll tell you a little bit about Sardis. It's quite an interesting history. It had a very illustrious history. It was one of the great cities of the ancient world for a while. But it was a city who, as Jesus is speaking to it now, uh, through John in this vision, it was a city who had a past that was greater than its present. Um, it had been really a fabulous city in the past, and now it was yeah, just okay. <laughs> That's kind of where it was. Sardis was the capital of the ancient kingdom of Lydia, which I never knew existed until I started reading about uh, Sardis. And uh, as the capital city, Sardis had been a centre of trade and commerce in the whole ancient world. It really was an incredibly important uh, place of trade. It was kind of like the Wall Street, in a way, of the ancient world, the New York of the ancient world. The lower part of the city uh, was the trade part of town, and so it was built on a river, and uh, so there was lots of trade could come and go through the lower part of the city. And then above the, above the, um, the river flats, there were these steep cliffs, and on top of the cliffs was where all the, the rulers and the wealthy to, and the to-do the well-to-do lived. They lived on top of these cliffs in the citadels and the fortress and the castle up there. And they were almost unassailable. You really couldn't get up there very easily. And uh, had, you know, a couple of roads up. And if, you, if, if they blocked those roads up, there was no way up. It was impossible. Um, it, they had a king in the uh, 500s <laughs> BC, a king called Croesus. Have you ever heard the phrase as rich as Croesus? Well, uh, it's a phrase meaning just fabulously wealthy, unimaginably wealthy. And Croesus was probably the wealthiest person in the world at his time. It was in Sardis, his capital city, that they first made solid gold and solid silver coins. 
No one, nowhere else could afford to do that. But in Sardis, they, they had so much of the stuff, they could, you know, make it the kind of thing you could drop out of your purse and wouldn't really matter so much. Richard's Croesus, he was a fabled king of enormous wealth and he reigned in Sardis over his kingdom of Lydia with all of his treasures around him on top of the cliffs in this very safe and secure place. Well, in 547 BC, when he was still king, uh, the city came under attack by a man called Cyrus, who was from Persia. If you've read the Old Testament, you'd know that Cyrus appears in the Old Testament as the person who defeats uh, the Babylonians uh, where Israel had been taken into captivity. And so he was a kind of a deliverer for Israel. But he, he arrives in, in Lydia and he quickly overruns the lower part of town. But Croesus and all of his mates are up on top of the cliffs and they're perfectly safe, so they think. What they've done is they've posted sentries around the town, they've, they've blocked off the roads, there's no way up. And the sentries are there to keep an eye out to make sure nobody's finding their way up. And the one place they don't look is where? They don't look down the cliffs. The cliffs are unclimbable. Or so they thought. And Cyrus sends his men up the cliff face and they capture the city and that's the end of Croesus's reign. Lydia as a kingdom continues for a while but it's kind of not great. You kind of think you'd learn from that, wouldn't you? Well, later on when Alexander the Great was around, he wanted to take the city of Sardis as well and there were all the rulers up on the cliffs and they thought they were safe and so what does Alexander do? sends men up the cliffs. <laughs> and then later on, there's another uh, Greek um, emperor called Antiochus, Antiochus the Great, and he, he wants to capture Sardis. What's everybody up on the cliff think they are? Safe? What does he do? He sends men up, up the cliffs. It's very interesting, isn't it? Like they say, the one thing we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. <laughs> I think that was uh, the guy who invented the the Model T Ford, who said that. One of the things about uh, every one of us is we, we live our lives as God's people in the midst of another culture. So the church is called to hear God's word and to live by the culture of God, really, to live by the truth of God, who God is, uh, the way he is, and by his word to us. And that we do that in the midst of a world in which there are lots of other words and lots of other... Uh, ways of being and that the trouble for the church is that we often get seduced by what surrounds us and then start to confuse what God says with what the culture in which we are set is saying. My guess is that the Western church is particularly facing that problem at the moment. I think we in the West, we're set in a fairly totalitarian kind of culture at the moment. It's, you know, permissive, and tol well, tolerant is the word that's used. Um, it's self-directed. Uh, everybody has autonomy. Everybody makes their own decisions. No one's going to tell me what to do. No one's going to tell me who I am. And we live in the middle of that, and yet we live by a God who speaks to us, who is our ruler. <laughs> God is our father and king. And... Uh, he has a particular way. It's not every person for themselves. There's the way of God for the people of God. And so we live in a tension between those things, don't we? The amount of time we give to listening to one or the other is really significant.
I want to come back to that in a moment. But uh, here we've got uh, Sardis. Later on, after um, it had gone through those three invasions, it had really fallen into pretty low times. And then in 17 AD, um, it was actually rocked by a huge earthquake which com almost completely destroyed the whole city. And it looked like that was the end of Sardis. But uh, the Roman Emperor Tiberius had a kind of a soft spot for it and he gave a very large gift for the rebuilding of Sardis and also gave them five years of exemption from the imperial tax to help them re-establish themselves. So by the time that uh, this letter is being sent via John, by Jesus, uh, to the church in Sardis, the city's recovered, but it's nothing like what it used to be. It never really regained its former glory. You can go to the ruins of Sardis now, it really doesn't exist, but there is a small village called Sart, apparently, on the, uh, on the ruins of Sardis. Has anybody ever heard of a man called Oliver Sacks? No? There's a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. It's a very interesting book. And Oliver Sacks was an American neurologist, so he specialised in brain problems. And he wrote this book, it was a kind of a, a series of case studies of different patients that he had. So he had one man who was a very brilliant man, but uh, he, he called the book The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat because when it came time for the end of the interview that he had with him, his first consultation with him, the man went to get his hat off a hat stand, but instead he grabbed his wife's face and couldn't tell the difference between the hat stand with the hat on and his wife. He was a conductor of an orchestra, very brilliant man, but something had happened in his brain and he couldn't... He could describe things, but he couldn't recognise them. So he could describe a rose, but he couldn't recognise... He couldn't recognise it if he saw it. Isn't that strange? And he, he would look at the thing, he'd say, well, it's a convoluted red object uh, with a fragrance. And then, but then if he gave it to him to smell, he would recognise it straight away. Oh, a rose. So very, the brain's an amazing thing, isn't it? Well, anyway, getting right off track here, I better be very uh, <laughs> um, uh, disciplined. Oliver Sacks, uh, in this book, he talks about one man called Andy, who was a patient of his, who had a thing called Korsakoff syndrome. And Korsakoff syndrome is a kind of dementia caused by alcoholism. And Andy was in his 50s, pretty good age, I think. Uh, and, uh, uh, but he really thought he was still 22. And when he was 22, he'd, he'd been a real stud. <laughs> like, he was a stud. 57 or 58, however he was in the book, not so much so, but he really thought he was still 22 and a stud. And so he'd strut around, you know, wear tight, <laughs> tight white T-shirts, you know, with <laughs> tighter than they used to be, and uh, strut around. <coughs> and um, one day, uh, Oliver Sacks, it was his early days of his neurology, he really wanted the guy to actually face reality. He thought it wasn't helpful for him to live in this kind of dementia. And so he held up a mirror to the man. And uh, so he could see, see, see himself. And he saw this, you know, the 22-year-old stud saw this 50-something-year-old man who kind of could have been his father, and he went to pieces. He was completely thrown by it, had no idea, didn't know what to do. 
And uh, Sachs made right at that decision, he said, I'm never doing that again to a person. But within 30 seconds, Andy had forgotten what he'd seen in the mirror and he'd gone back to thinking what he was in the past. He wasn't in his former glory, but he thought he was. Now, Jesus uses the history of the city of Sardis as a kind of a parable for the situation of the church in Sardis. In one way, they have become, the church has become like the city. It's kind of been swallowed up into the city's culture and the city's history. The church in Sardis had a past that was more glorious than its present. He said you've got a reputation, a reputation of being alive. You know what a reputation is? It's basically your history as other people perceive it. So other people know about your history and they think that means about you now. So they hear your history and they think that means this about you now. A good reputation takes a long time to build, doesn't it? It doesn't take much to do, does it, to create a bad reputation? It's very hard to walk away from a bad reputation and it takes a lifetime, really, to build a good reputation. Well, the, uh, the church inside us had this reputation of being alive, but they're dead. It's kind of like if you lived in... Sardis in 17 AD, just after the earthquake, and you went around saying, we're a fabulous city. Look at all of our treasures. Like you're living back in 548 BC. <laughs> or you're like Andy. I'm a stud, 22 and ready to go. You know, that's what the, the Sardis church was like. It thought it was one thing, but it was another thing altogether. Hadn't, didn't see how far it had fallen. And so Jesus wants to speak to it. The Sardis church kind of remember their past, but in a way they misremember their past, which means that they're unable to see the way they are now. I think that's the main thing for us as Christians. If we misremember our history, we we fail to see what's really going on with us. Now, where does our history as Christian people begin? It begins with the great acts of God for us in Jesus Christ. Our history as God's people, our history as Christians begins because God acted for us. That's where our glory is, isn't it? That, that's our glorious past. It's really nothing about us. Our great glory begins with the kindness and mercy of God that appeared in Jesus Christ. We don't really ever move past that. My guess is that the Sardis church had started to think, we're a pretty good church. We do this and we do that and we do this and we do that. Not like those other churches around us. <laughs> we're a good church. And so they'd started to see their glory in themselves. They'd forgotten what their real glory was. And because they missaw their real glory, they actually misdiagnosed their present condition. Their present condition is they've lost contact with Jesus Christ. They're kind of dead to him. You think you're alive to me, but you're dead. 
They're under threat now. And what they're threatened with is either that they could just go down that track of staying dead or there's another threat that hangs over them, which is, and Jesus says it this way, um, uh, he says, you're dead, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not come, uh, if you will not wake up, I will come. Like a thief. What is that? What would a person in Sardis have thought about there? They would have thought about all those men that used to climb up the cliffs. You know, they, in a way they think they're safe. God loves us. He'll just tolerate whatever we do. He's that kind of God. No, God actually wants us to be a holy and blameless family. And if we're not going to be that, either the worst thing would be that he'd just leave us to go down that track. That'd be dreadful. But here's the other thing. Jesus himself might come and wake us up. But there is a, a way in between those two possibilities. Both those possibilities are pretty threatening. One is disastrous. One will, will result in good. If Jesus comes and wakes them, but that will result in good. But there's actually a third option for them, and that's the, all those commands he puts between. He says, you're dead, you're on the point of death, wake up, strengthen what remains, repent, and uh, remember what you received and heard, keep it. All those things will stop them being either in the slow road to death or facing the severe coming of Jesus to them to wake them up. Every church has a real responsibility given to it by Jesus Christ to govern its life, uh, to make sure it's holding fast to Jesus Christ, that it's holding fast to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're actually really responsible for that. If we won't, Jesus will take hold of us and give us a good shake. But before that, he'd much rather that we sort ourselves out. When I was a kid, my parents would sometimes, you know, hear us fighting in the bedroom, me and my brother, and they'd say something like this, I don't want to have to come in there. What would happen if they did have to come in there? They'd sort us out. When they were saying, I don't want to have to come in there, what were they calling us to do? Sort it out. Get hold of things the way they really should be. And that's what Jesus is saying to this church in Sardis. He says, um, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief in the night and you will not know at what hour I come against you. And then it's going to be somewhat, uh, well it will be judgment or, or chastisement, whatever the word is that you want to use there, but it will be a really difficult time for the church. Much better if the church continues to hold fast to Jesus Christ and to the grace of God in Jesus Christ and order its life by that. Now, I think the Western church, we're in a pretty tough time, aren't we? I think you could say we're dead or there's a little bit remaining, but it's about to die. The, the Western church is pretty crook. We've just completely absorbed the culture of our time. We're materialist, consumerist, uh, we want autonomy, 
Uh, if we don't like what uh, the discipline in one church is, well, we just leave that and go to another church. They're not going to tell us what to do. Who do they think they are? Um, we're uh, permissive. That's the Western church, by and large. I'm not saying that about every congregation, or I don't know you. <laughs> uh, but we live in this culture and we're absorbed by it. And I think Jesus is giving the Western church a time now before he, well, maybe he's even coming to shake us like a thief in the night. To actually shake us, say, do you love me? We're not told exactly what's going on in Sardis that Jesus is so displeased with. He just says, uh, your works, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. There's something about the way they are and the way they live and what they're doing that just does not match what God would want for his church. And it's clearly such an important mismatch that it has to be taken in hand. God is incredibly patient with us. He's not, God is not a perfectionist with us. He's not saying, get your act in order or else. I mean, he's not a perfectionist. He's actually the perfecter of our faith, isn't he? So he's not saying, you sort it out. He's actually coming to us all the time through the gift of the Holy Spirit and through his word spoken to us by the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ. He's always coming to us and saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way. And he's empowering us and helping us. But if we refuse that, uh, then we're in trouble. He's not a perfectionist. And so he's very patient with us, with our failings. But one thing he is not patient with, beloved ones, he's not patient with us if we hear his clear word and say, nah. It's one thing to hear God's word and say, please help me. Or to say yes and then to fail. It's another thing to hear God's word and say, nah, that's a really serious. That's when Jesus actually has to warn us and shake us. I keep going here. <laughs> so there's two risks that face the church inside us. So the most dreadful risk is that Jesus would just say, oh, well, go your own way. That would be, that would be Jesus handing the church over to its own destiny. Make of yourselves, what do, you, what do you want to make of yourselves? But you just, have, you just have nothing to do with me, that's all. That would be the worst. But this other risk is uh, that, they will, um, that Jesus will come and sort them out. And in between these are these two, these two, uh, in between these two ways, is this one way that Jesus sets out for them in those five very concise and power-packed verbs. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, Remember what you received, keep it, repent. Five very important things, aren't there? Now, these are the commands of Jesus, who's introduced him to the church right at the beginning of this little letter, saying, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That's kind of an interesting uh, introduction like Jesus is speaking to this church and what he wants the church in Sardis to know and maybe it's what he wants the church in the Western world to know is that he is Jesus who, holds, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Just to say this, that basically the, one of the biggest problems with the Western church is like 
the West in general is we think we're the measure of everything. We think that the world should be just like us and the more they're like us, the better they are. Uh, I used to be an Anglican minister a long time ago and uh, while I was the Anglican, in the Anglican Church, there was a, a big Lambeth conference which is that all the bishops in the whole world, all the Anglican bishops in the whole world are invited to Lambeth Palace in Canterbury uh, to meet together, talk about matters that are really important to the church. And there was, this was in the 1990s, there was a discussion about same-sex marriage. Uh, back then it's just like the, the thing that will never go away. And uh, everybody in the Western church that went, the large majority of the Western church thought, we've just got to get on with this and do it. We've just got to let it happen. And... Uh, they were pretty sure that they were going to do it and they got a shock because 524 to 74 bishops voted against it. Like the Western bishops just suddenly realised that there was a whole world out there that they'd been ignoring. The church in Africa, the church in South America, the church in Asia, the church in Oceania. All the kind of Western churches thought they knew just the way things really lay. And the way the world should be. And the, the pushback from the rest of the world was, no, no, that is not the way of God. It's quite something. It was, a, it was a shock. A really good shock. Now, Jesus holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars is actually the whole church. So a church can go along and do its own thing, but it actually belongs to the whole church. The seven stars, he says that earlier on in chapter 1, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. And in a way, it's kind of symbolic then of really the whole church. So Jesus is the Lord of the whole church. You know, what we do in the West actually has an impact on churches in other countries. You know, when, the, when a Western church allows same-sex marriage. You know what happens to Christians in uh, Muslim-majority parts of the world? Their churches get burnt down. What do we care? You know, and not, it's not just their church buildings get burnt down, but their people get killed or they lose their jobs. It's something. Jesus holds the whole church and we cannot do something of our own thing and think, oh, well, we're just going to do our thing and realise that we're affecting brothers and sisters because we are part of the whole church of Jesus Christ. But he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God are mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It's the only other place in the Bible where the seven spirits of God are mentioned. And um, there it's a Trinitarian greeting that opens the whole of the letter uh, this letter book to the churches, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's God the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. So you've got the Father and you've got Jesus on either side. And then in the middle you've got the seven spirits of God. So it does seem very clear, doesn't it? The seven spirits of God is a particular way of speaking about the Holy Spirit. It's not seven different spirits. It's like the sevenfold spirit or even seven being the complete spirit of God. 
the, the Spirit of God in all his fullness. So Jesus, who has the whole Spirit of God and the whole church, is the one who's speaking to the church in Sardis. If the West thinks it's got a monopoly on discerning the Spirit of God, the mind of the Spirit, again, we're deluded. Jesus has a connection between the whole Spirit of God and the whole church. You can't just go off on your own little thing. The seventh... Uh, uh, Jesus has the Spirit of God. He has the seventh-fold Spirit. And so he is the one who pours the Holy Spirit on the church. To say that he has the Spirit of God doesn't just mean that he's received the Spirit from the Father, but he also is the one who gives the Spirit. He pours out the Spirit on whom he chooses. And he chooses to pour out the Spirit on the church, the whole church. That's a wonderful thing. The church in Sardis, like every congregation of God's people, has the source of its life in the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you can't really be a church without the Holy Spirit. <laughs> you, you might do a kind of pretend, <laughs> but it won't be the thing. Uh, it's like a friend of mine, he said, you can, talk a, you can teach a dog to walk on its hind legs and to, you know, uh, but you can never really teach it to be a human being. And the church without the Holy Spirit can never really be the church. But it's Jesus who pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. And where does he pour the Holy Spirit from? John, I love John 7. Uh, I'll read it <laughs> just to make sure I get it right. <laughs> Jesus says this. It's the great and last day of the feast. He, cry, he stands up in the, in the temple courts and he cries this out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the, spirits, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow river of living water, rivers of living water. And then John adds this little comment. He says, now this he said about the spirit that those who believed in Jesus were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus there is promising the Holy Spirit to believers, to congregations and God's people everywhere. He's going to pour it out and rivers of living water are going to flow out from us. The life of God flowing into us so that life can flow out to us into the world. But he says there, John says, he said this about the Holy Spirit but as yet, the Spirit hadn't been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. It's going to take something for the life of God to flow into the church. It's going to take the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Without that, the Spirit can't come to us. And what the Spirit is doing when the Spirit comes to us is he's pouring right into us all the fullness of what the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus means for us. When the Holy Spirit comes, we see just why it was that Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand. We see that it was to rescue a world from slavery to sin and death and the evil one, to liberate us 
into a whole life that is full of the truth of God so that we may be those that do the will of God and to enable us to then be part of God's renewing of the whole creation. Like being a Christian is, is coming into something really, 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 really big. It's a whole lot more glorious than Sardis ever was. It's the most extraordinary thing to come into the kingdom of God uh, through the gift of the Holy Spirit is to come into the plan of God to renew everything, to bring everything out of slavery to sin and death and the evil one and into the life of God, into the holiness and the goodness and the truth and the love and the uh, righteousness of God. So my guess is that the church in Sardis has forgotten all of that. They just think it's nice being in this kind of world. The living church, the vital, fruitful, awake, glory-filled church is the church that lives in gobsmacked, soul-filled wonder and joy and thanks at the love of God that has worked such saving grace for us in Jesus Christ and brought such hope for a glorious future to us. That's the living church. Where we lose that, when we get more concerned about our programs and our activities and so on, and we're just not gobsmacked with the glory of all that God has done in Jesus Christ to ensure that there's a future in where there is nothing but righteousness and the glory of God filling the world as the waters cover the sea. If we forget that, we're saddest. We need to wake up. Remember. Keep it. Do it. The church in Sardis had forgotten. They'd been seduced by the ideas of sophistication, urbanity and general decency. They would have been listening to the ABC. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, going to good concerts and, uh, and eating at really nice restaurants and they would have had the good life as it's portrayed to us. But they didn't have the life of God flowing to them. We're too easily seduced by all this stuff too. We want to be thought of well in our world. We too easily forget that our whole lives are lived by the holy and loving judge of all people who actually has a future that is shaped by his glory and righteousness and goodness and truth and love. And that anything other than that, if we settle for anything other than that, less than that, that enormous future, if we're not always pressing forward towards that, onwards and inwards, onwards and inwards into that, uh, we are going nowhere. You know that where that phrase, onwards and inwards, comes from? It comes from uh, the last of the Narnia stories, the last battle, when finally they, they're actually in the kingdom. They, they, they've come to, to uh, Aslan's land. But what do you want to do when you know Aslan? What do you want to do when you know Jesus Christ? You want to go onwards and inwards, further and further into the reality that he's creating through his glorious gospel. Oh, love that will not let me go. You know that old hymn. It's a great, great word.
to lose appreciation for the depth of the love of God is a dreadful thing. And yet here Jesus is saying, I'm not going to let you go. I will come like a thief in the night. It'll be messy. But I will come and love will not let us go. Jesus himself warns us that if we become sleepy in our relationship with him, he'll climb up the cliffs and invade our cities, overthrow the citadel, not to destroy us and not just to rebuild us into a little kind of leftover village now, but to rebuild us back into the glorious future that he has. I think that'll do me today. I just want to pray. It's a hymn that a friend of mine wrote a number of years ago. And uh, I'll pray that and then we'll sing our last song. Oh, Father, I am not proof against your love. I am not strong against your joy. Though I am strong against everything else and though my powers I may employ, I am not proof against your love, O Father, Son and Holy Dove. I have not found my powers to be strong when the Lord of hosts draws near. His songs of love unsettle me and all his hosts dispel my fear. I am not proof against your love, Father, Son and Holy Dove. My citadel so long was locked, firm, grim and lone upon its place until the Lord of hosts encamped and all my powers of sin laid waste, I proved not proof against the love of Father, Son and Holy Dove. My gates were lifted up that day, my portals broke and opened wide. The King of glory and his hosts flowed in forever to abide. The glory of eternal love of Father, Son and Holy Dove. I was not proof against that love. The hands I saw were scarred with nails. The eyes that once were filled with pain spoke love to me that never fails. I gladly bowed to conquering love of Father, Son and Holy Dove. Ah, oh, you, the one eternal love, I thank you that you entrance made into this needy heart of mine by grace and by the price you paid. And now I thank you for your love, dear Father, Son, and Holy Dove. Amen.